Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, Dr. Nicholas Shazer joins us once again to talk about his soon-to-be-released course at IBC called Israelite Creation in Context. Last week, we considered several ancient Near Eastern contextual issues that help us know how to read Genesis 1. And we ended with the conclusion that the modern antagonism between the Bible and science is not germane to the biblical text. Dr. Shazer pointed out that the Bible is not even in conversation with scientific theory. They are in completely different genres, answering completely different questions. At this point, I try to move the conversation to Genesis 2 because I find this chapter fascinating and full of all kinds of details that are not obvious during a quick read. The chapter seems to flow like a story out of Genesis 1, but it has a very different character to it. And last week, Dr. Shazer talked about Genesis 1 as a priestly text, a bit like Leviticus. So how does he describe Genesis 2? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Good. So Genesis 2, yes, is a very different creation account than we get in Genesis 1. Uh, it's, it's obvious just in the, you know, on the basic level of writing. So if you can read these texts in Hebrew in particular, uh, it's, I, I'm trying to like give a, an analogy for our, for our listeners, but it's, it's so obvious that it's, at least a completely different story, if not written by completely different authorship. I mean, most scholars are going to say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are written at different times by different authors. I'm fine with that conclusion. Um, you know, I think that uh, the the final editors, or what, what's called redactors of the Bible, were not concerned with this difference, by the way. So I don't think that contemporary readers should be concerned by it either. There, there are certain ways to look at the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and to iron out... To, uh, that is to both to both highlight difference where there is, and trust me, there is. It's completely different, actually. Um, in fact, it's I would say it's opposite, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But you can both affirm its oppositeness and not be concerned about quote unquote contradiction. There's an easy way to do this. Um, in Genesis one, again written by a priestly source, its its concern, its vantage point is God. You know, in the beginning, God. So that is what we've got is God in the heavenly realm assigning function to the earthly earthly realm. So it's a kind of a um, top-down story. God creating what's underneath the, the heavenly realm, which is the earthly realm. Then when we get to Genesis 2, the perspective completely inverts. It's, it's from the human perspective in the terrestrial realm looking up to God. So, and in fact, if you'll if you'll notice the even the organization of what happens first in creation in Genesis 1 and then into day 6. If you look at Genesis 2, 
it's it's the exact opposite sequence of of creation. <laughs> okay, why might that be? Is it just because you know it's a quote contradiction, so we should throw out the Bible? Absolutely not, because it's coming from a terrestrial perspective and looking upwards in Genesis two. It would make total sense that the order should be mirrored from what we see in Genesis one. That is, it's a, it's a purposeful one eightying of Genesis 1 that we see in Genesis 2. The original editors of the Bible knew this, and that's why they put this together. It's not like it was a mistake. <laughs> they did it on purpose because it's cool and because it gives us the it, precisely the two perspectives we need, one from a God's eye view and one from human view. So, simple. Yeah, which just goes back to the question that is always a good one to be raising and trying to dig into, which is, okay, so we just talked about what question is Genesis 1 answering, and so what question is Genesis 2 answering? It's just, we're, we're talking about the beginnings, but it has a different question that is at the core of what it is is trying to do. So I don't know if you would want to to kind of unpack this, but I think you have a unit in the course that is talking about time and place or sanctifying time and place. Uh, So I'd be curious if you want to kind of dig into that aspect and that perspective of Genesis 2. Sure. Yeah. So I might as well just start at the beginning of Genesis 2, which actually is the end of Genesis 1. I know that sounds very confusing, But uh, what I mean by that is the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2 are actually the end of the priestly account that we get in Genesis 1. So uh, there are no chapter divisions in the original biblical text. So essentially what's happened here is just a kind of, I would say, a fumbling, a dropping of the ball when it comes to figuring out where these chapter breaks should start. But uh, the beginning of Genesis 2 is really interesting. You know, it's, it's the seventh day. It's the day of rest for God. And what does God do? Well, it says, you know, God ceased from all the work that God had been doing in the past six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. And God made the, the seventh day holy. And God separates it from the other days. And so what, what God does there is sanctify a day. So that is a sanctification of time. Why is that important? Well, to go back to an historical event in an historical context, talking about the Babylonian exile, um, I, I mentioned the Enuma Elish and comparing the Enuma Elish with, with Genesis 1, and then in this case in the first few sentences of Genesis 2. At the end of the Enuma Elish, the last thing that Marduk, who has now uh, you know, become the, the top god of the Babylonian pantheon, um, what Marduk does is say, okay, we need to build a city and we need to build a temple for the gods to be in. And so what happens is, is that the, um, this Doesn't lesser Doesn't he group- add, we need my own temple over all the gods? I mean, yes, there's exactly. Like a- That's right. Yeah. Marduk, Marduk needs a temple, like a special best temple. That is the Marduk temple. And Marduk enlists these lesser gods called the Anunnaki. And it's this group of lesser gods who create the temple and city of Babylon. And the last thing that happens in the Enuma Elish is like this exaltation of Babylon, which is, you know, the gate of the gods, you know. And that's how the story ends, the exaltation of space. 
It's the sanctification of space. Why? Because the Babylonians thought that Babylon was the best place in the world. And indeed, at that time, it was the, it was the you know, greatest empire the world had ever seen. So you can understand why they would sanctify Babylon. So what, why does, in, in Genesis, though, God doesn't sanctify a space. God sanctifies time. Well, part of the historical reason for that is, again, the Babylonians exile the Israelites in 586. And so the Israelites then have no space. They're taken away from their homeland, from their space, and brought to Babylon. But it doesn't matter because what does their God do? Sanctifies time. The God of Israel is the master over all of time, which is way more expansive than a little city in the Babylonian Empire that's going to crumble that's, that time is going to ultimately destroy. So this is yet another shot. It's a priestly polemic against the Babylonians to prove that the God of Israel is actually superior to the gods of Babylon. So there's a, there's a, a difference between the sanctification of space in the other ancient Near Eastern account versus the sanctification of time in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, moreover, another, another question that Genesis 2 is, is answering is how human beings act and relate to one another in the space that God has created. So Genesis 1 talks about God's creation of that space, and we get a, a brief mention of humanity, you know, being made in God's image at the end of Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2 kind of says, all right, how, is, how are human beings supposed to relate to each other and to God in this space? And so what does God do? God creates the human and infuses the human, ha-adam. Um, that's how you get the, the word Adam, Adam, but in Hebrew, Adam just means human or humanity. And so, um, you know, what does the human do? How should the human act? Uh, well, God takes the human and places the human in a garden, in Gan Eden, which is a sacred space. And it's a space of really close relationship between humanity and God. We hear about, in Genesis chapter 3, God walking in the cool of the day, in the midst of the garden of Adam and Eve, hearing the sound of God walking through that, that garden. So, it's a sacred space that humanity is supposed to work and to keep. And God infuses humanity with God's spirit in that space. So we know from Genesis 1 that humanity is not just flesh and bone, but in infused with something that's God-given. So that's saying something really important about, about humanity. Now, it also shows that humanity messes up. And so there's a kind of two sides to this human coin. We also get humanity's relationship to animals, for example, with Adam, the human naming all these animals. We also, I think most importantly, get the uh, relationship between Ha'adam, the human, and the second human, who is called the woman, ha the Isha. Um, you know, I've said this many, many times in many different forums, both written and spoken at IBC. And uh, here on the podcast. And here on the podcast. Yes, that's true. So I suppose yeah, you can go Yeah, because we talked about your women in the Bible. That's right. Yeah. So you can take a look at that at that uh, podcast if you'd like as well or, or listen to that again. Yeah, but make the point because it's beautiful and I don't think it can be made often enough. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So in English translations, the creation of the woman goes something like uh, that God took a rib from Adam and then built the woman. But... The Hebrew word for rib is is selah, which does not mean rib anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, not a single time, not once. And in fact, every other time, some 40 times that it shows up in the Bible, it always means a complete side of something. So 
in, insofar as we've got a full half taken from the human to create the woman, what this shows us is, is these two are mirrored images and they are complete ontological equals. The woman is not made from one small piece of the male anatomy, the rib. Rather, it's saying that these two are equal halves, and when they come back together, they become basar echad, they become one flesh. So it's a, it's a statement of total ontological equality between men and women, according to Genesis 2. So that's another thing that Genesis 2 is teaching us about us, because remember, Genesis 2 is from the human perspective, Genesis 1 is from the divine heavenly perspective. So I'm glad you summarized it that way, because we talked about how how different Genesis 1 and 2 is. And if Genesis 1 is ending actually at the first part of Genesis 2, but with sanctifying time, there is a sanctifying of place that happens in this other narrative. And so can we can we talk a little bit about how Eden itself is sacred? You, you kind of tipped your hat to it earlier because you said the human was put in sacred space. But um, how do we yep. how do we see that taking shape in Genesis two? Yeah, so an ancient Israel Israelite reader would have understood Eden as a sacred space. God is appointing sacred space within God's broader world, and something that's helpful here actually is to back up. Not that we don't want to stay in Genesis two, but again, uh, Genesis one is informative here. So let's just <laughs> let's deal with that just really briefly. Okay, hold on for a moment. I promise. I will make sure we come back to Eden. But Dr. Shazer is about to take us into Genesis 1, which is going to show us once more how different this biblical text is to what the modern science is trying to do. And that is, um, speaking of genre, so we know it's a creation account, Genesis 1, but it's also what's called a temple building account. And we get a lot of these in, in you know, the ancient Near East as well. Uh, the, a story of a god or gods building their temple. And we know that what God is up to, the God of Israel is up to in Genesis 1, is, is, is making functional the world in the same way that one would make a temple functional in ancient Israel. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, God says, for instance, you know, let there be light, or God creates two great lights, if you'll remember, essentially the sun and the moon, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. Well, the, the word for light there is ma'or, and it's the same word we get in Leviticus when God commands the priests to always be taking care of a continual light in the temple, a ma'or that's supposed to be in the temple. Um, another one is this, this term in Hebrew, rakia, which means that expanse or that firmament that God sets up. Well, God sets that up in the sky, the rakia, in Genesis 1. But like in Psalm 150, for example, it's talking about, you know, uh, worshiping God in the temple. And it says, praise God in your sanctuary, you know, praise you in your mighty rakia. That's literally the ceiling of the temple in Jerusalem. And so this works for every action that God does in Genesis 1. This is going back to underscoring our point that this is not about biological science. Biological science actually starts to sound a little boring when we really look at what the messaging of Genesis 1 actually is, which is this, that in building the world, I shouldn't use the term building, really, you build a physical temple, God is functionalizing 
the world in the same way that a temple is made functional. But why? What is that? What's the big overarching message that the text is telling us? Well, other gods had temples. Marduk had a temple in Babylon. You know, a Baal has a temple. And in fact, in a text called the Baal cycle, which is a Canaanite text, how many days does it take Baal to create Baal's temple? Seven days. Because seven days is a classical period of time in which, in which uh, these, these temple building narratives say it took to build the temple. So all of this stuff kind of congeals to show that what God is up to in the creation of the world is a temple building project. So what does that say? Other gods have their little temples in their cities, but our God's temple is the entire world. It's it's pretty amazing. And, and you know, what that shows us too is that God is like the ultimate high priest over the world. And even that is a, is a massive theological claim. Remember the human beings in Enuma Elis were slaves, but in Genesis... God is the great high priest. And what does the high priest do? It, the high priest intercedes in the temple between God and the rest of Israel. And so what God is functioning here as is the great priest interceding on behalf of humanity, forgiving sin, stepping into relationship. It, it's a picture of a God that is so much more worthy of following than a God like Marduk. Um, it's, it's not even close so again, all of the messaging in Genesis 1 is to really show why the God of Israel is superior to all other gods. And Eden, Dr. Shazer, don't forget about Eden. So with, with that broader temple building context in mind, that the idea that the whole world is the temple of the God of Israel, then we get in Genesis 2 the creation of this sacred space, Eden. And so what we can think of in terms of Eden is the holy of holies in the broader temple of the world, the place where a human is as close to God as is humanly possible. If you remember, the priest enters into the holy of holies. That's where the ark is in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God comes down and fills that area and speaks. If you remember in, in Numbers chapter 12, for example, before the temple is created, um, there's a tent of meeting that Moses goes to. That's the equivalent of Eden because Moses goes in the tent and Numbers 12 says that Moses talks with God face to face as a friend would talk to a friend. That's what we get in Eden, is that the, the first humans are relating to God as a friend would relate to a friend. So Eden literally is the holy of holies, the sacred of all spaces within the broader temple of God's world. Yeah, I love Genesis 2 and getting people to read and think about Genesis 2 in a different way, I often will tell people, just try to draw it. Draw it. And it, people go, wait, you know, but you can't draw it. I'm like, no, 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 you can. You can draw it because there's like the space and then there's Eden, which is a different space that is smaller. And then there's a garden inside Eden. And so as soon as you start paying attention to those things, you're like, oh, it's a tripartite space. Yeah, good. Which immediately everyone goes tabernacle temple because that's just, that's the pattern. That's beautiful. And I think it's, it's so great. I love it. I that's love beautiful. It. That, that, that's wonderful. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. So like kind of blueprinting it, I think yeah. is really helpful. That That's fabulous. And you know, it's, it's clear that ancient Jews after the writing of the Bible knew that Eden was a, was an inner sanctuary in the temple of God's world. If you, if you read a text like Jubilees, which is a second temple text. It was very popular in the time of, say, Paul and Jesus. I mean, 
Jews of the period knew this text. It was widely read. We see, we see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. We see it elsewhere. And it's really interesting. When Adam and Eve uh, are you know, about to go into Eden, according to Jubilees, they, they purify themselves. They, they dunk themselves in purifying waters. Why? Because they're making themselves ritually pure to enter the Holy of Holies. So it's just, it's a wonderful way. It's just very, very clear that these ancient Jewish writers and thinkers understood Eden in the, in the exact same way as a Holy of Holies within God's greater temple of the world. So I know you cover so much more than what we're doing on these episodes of the podcast, but maybe we can end on something of a fun note. And this is something too that uh, you've tossed out this in a couple seminars that I've been a part of that you are often a part of. Um, so let's talk about Genesis 3 and the talking snake and poisonous apples, which I'm always quick to say it wasn't an apple. You that's know, right. Not an apple. <laughs> that's not, not an apple. Not indigenous to that, that place. That's right. Well, uh, let's talk about talking snakes. What apples Yeah, what's kill? going on? What? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, so in Hebrew, it's just the the fruit. It's just fruit. So peri in Hebrew yeah. means fruit. So that's what they're taking. Apple is later. Yeah. We can thank art for that. The Hebrew for apple is tepuach, which is not doesn't show up in in Genesis three. So it's it's just a fruit. It's an undisclosed fruit. But like, what's the deal with this snake? You know, like, and that's the first uh, figure that we see in Genesis chapter three. It actually starts out with v'hanachash. V- v- which in Hebrew just means end the snake, or now the snake. And this is actually really interesting because in Hebrew, usually sentences start with a verb, not a noun. And so when a, when a sentence starts with a noun like the snake, you know that you should be paying attention to the snake, like the snake's going to be an important figure. And why does this snake make this kind of like bombastic entrance right at the outset? It's because that every ancient Near Easterner uh, who's read anything, knew that a snake of all animals was what is what co- is called a chaos creature. So, you know, take your pick of ancient Near Eastern literature and you'll always see snakes coming up as unsavory figures that bungle things up or they should be avoided or they're a little scary. For instance, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which predates the Bible, the Israelite Bible, um, Gilgamesh, the hero, is looking for everlasting life. And it turns out that it's a plant that gives everlasting life, and he's on the, the seashore. And very, in a very silly way, um, Gilgamesh falls asleep. And when Gilgamesh falls asleep, a snake comes out of a well and steals the plant of everlasting life and takes it away from Gilgamesh. Well, it's a snake because snakes were commonly understood to be chaos creatures. So that there's a parallel right there. We've got another uh, kind of shrewd, problematic snake in Genesis, and we've got a tree. Instead of a plant, we've got a tree of life in Genesis. And so this is a trope. It's an ancient Near Eastern trope. In Egyptian literature, uh, there are texts that talk about 
trampling the snake underfoot, that, for example, Horus, the, the deity in Egypt, is going to strike the head of the snake with his heel and tread over him, and the snake will have to go around on his belly forever. Well, that sounds a lot like the curses that God gives the snake in Genesis chapter 3. So uh, the Israelites are participating in a genre. They're participating in, you know, uh, literary assumptions that would have been known to other ancient Near Eastern peoples, and they're making their own particular point about it. Um, it's... Uh, so that that's why the snake is a snake. And um, often, you know, in later Christian thought, and actually in some Jewish thought quite a bit later, well, well after the Bible and even well after the New Testament, um, we get this idea that the snake was somehow Satan or that, like, the devil, like, got into the snake or, um, you know, the text says a snake, but it really means Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, there's absolutely no evidence for Satan at all. Um, in fact, it says that of all the animals that God had created on the earth, the the snake was the most arum, meaning crafty or something like that. Uh, so it's clear that the snake is an animal in Genesis 3. And um, though we don't have time to get into it, I would propose that nowhere in the, in the Tanakh, in Israel scriptures, nor in the New Testament anywhere, ever, is the snake in Eden associated with Satan? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love this. It just means that in episode notes of this particular show, <laughs> I will have to put in a few different links for not only hot topic seminars where we've talked about that, but a couple of your articles where you've talked about that. That is something that has been of great interest to the IBC community, and it's good to, again, have you repeat it. It's it's just another invitation into the development of thought and the development of beliefs. And yeah, we don't have to read everything into Genesis from the beginning. That's right. Yeah. I mean, people are constantly looking for origin stories. Speaking of the origins of the universe yeah, and the yeah. origins of the earth and, and people need an origin story for, for bad guys too. And, uh, and so, you know, going to the snake, going to that first chaotic entity that really does, you know, mess things up for humanity in many ways. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I can definitely understand why, uh, later thinkers would want to associate that entity with Satan or the devil. It's just that the text itself, um, and nothing in scripture after Genesis three, to my mind, um, makes that link. As I said earlier, I will add some links in the episode notes so you can continue exploring the concepts of Genesis 1 through 3. If you love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. Keep your eye out for this class, which is being released soon. And while you wait for it, indulge in a few other classes that allow you to earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>